Well, welcome back to our observance of Advent. I'm going to invite you to grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2 today. In fact, we're going to read a, a, a few verses out loud together as we start. Someone commented just now on our timers and stuff on the, on the screen. I said, well, I'm long-winded, so I gotta, in order for me to honor your time, I've got I to gotta keep myself on a timer. Sometimes I say I, I talk too much. Isaiah chapter 2, we're going to read together verses 2 through 4. These will be the passages that we'll work through mostly uh, today, and then a, a passage in the New Testament as well. After I hear, the, hear your pages stop rattling, we will uh, we'll read these out loud together. Forgive me, I didn't look up the page number in the, the Pew Bible, but if you are here uh, and you don't have a Bible, underneath the middle aisle of seats, there are some Bibles stacked there, and you are welcome to, to use those. Get the person beside you to find Isaiah if you can't find it. It's like... Divide your Bible in half and go left. And if it will help, if it helps you, 684 in my Bible. Um, and you can have that Bible to keep if you, if you need one. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Let's read together. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. And we thank you for Christmas. Christmas is like, oh, it's, I mean, who doesn't love Christmas? And it's observed uh, the world around. We thank you that in uh, on, on this time of year, we celebrate the, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ that you sent to, to save us, to deliver us. And Lord, even as we observe Christmas, we thank you uh, that today, um, during our Advent celebration, we get to talk not just about the tradition of Christmas or the, the, the giving and receiving of gifts, but we talk about the, the real meaning of Christmas itself, uh, the giving of Jesus, the one who is our hope and who is the greatest expression of love that you give to us and that uh, is joy for us, and today we learn that he also is our peace. In Scripture, through Isaiah, you said he is the Prince of Peace. And so, Lord, would you show us who you are today through your Scriptures? Open our eyes and uh, open our ears that we might hear and see you, and that your gospel might go forth, and that our lives might be changed in, in the hearing of your word. We pray that in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Advent is a celebration, a traditional celebration uh, of the church, um, of the coming of Jesus, of the, the birth of Jesus. And the church has historically looked back to the Old Testament days where the people of God were looking for a Messiah. They wanted, uh, they wanted some hero to come and deliver them from the plight of their lives, 
from everything that was wrong with them internally, from everything that was wrong with them externally, for everything that was wrong about the world they lived in. They wanted someone to come and deliver them um, and make things better. And so the Bible unfolds the redemptive history of God, that God calls the people to himself. He desires for them to be his people. He tells them, I'm going to be your God as you follow uh, my commands. And in the fullness of time, God's people fail to do that. And so God sends Jesus. He is God come to dwell in the midst of us. And so the, the church, the anticipation that the church had is fulfilled through Jesus. Jesus comes as a baby, but he grows up into a man. And by God's plan, this man is crucified on the cross. We celebrate the death and the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, obviously, at Easter. And so for the church today, when we celebrate Advent, this historic um, celebration of Christmas, we aren't doing away with the traditions of the church. We aren't saying that traditions that we celebrate now are wrong, but we are focusing in on really the real reason for the season, which is Jesus, that he was anticipated to come and deliver us, that he has come. And for us today, our anticipation is that Jesus will yet come again, because the Bible says that Jesus is going to, to come back and He's going to gather the quick and the dead, and we will live with him eternally. That's what Advent is. There's a lot of neat things about our, our celebration of Christmas. Uh, one of the prominent parts of Christmas are the songs that we sing. Uh, our, yesterday, we were just having fun, just a leisurely morning, didn't really have much to do, and we were, uh, we were trying to get through the 12 days of Christmas. And you, it, you should have been in our house, because it was just hilarious. Um, David's on the piano plucking it out. Zoe's trying to come up with the words, and she got stuck on the eight maids of milking. I mean, she just couldn't get that right consecutively 12 times, you know, like three times in a row. We have all kinds of, of songs that we sing at Christmas. If you're one of the Christmas, uh, Christmas carry kind of people, then you got those songs. If you're just a radio listener, whether you listen to classical or, or rock or uh, hip-hop or country, there are Christmas songs to go along with whatever genre of music that you listen to. Even if you're listening to NPR or some kind of news channel, when they come to a break, they're going to play the music of Christmas during this season. And as we've celebrated Advent, I don't know if you've noticed it, but we've concentrated, we, we have focused at least on one song that's typically sung during Advent, during our, our worship, uh, worship time right here at the transit. Well, we sung O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which likens the words of Isaiah that said the Messiah would come and his name actually is uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, John chapter one, verse 14 says that Jesus comes to dwell among us. That he comes in, in the flesh. We sang angels we have heard on high during during week two. When we talked about love. And of course, that likens uh, the, the Luke passage that we read during our, our candlelighting ceremony where the angels just show up out of nowhere. They scare these shepherds and they this host of angels are singing glory to God in the highest peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Last week, we sang joy to the world. The Lord is come. And of course, uh, that's. Uh, celebrating the fact that Jesus has come, but it's also an anticipating that, you know, there's sometimes I don't I don't have joy in my heart. Sometimes the world that we live in, I, I mean, can you find joy? But joy comes uh, not necessarily in a circumstance. Joy is in Jesus. And of course, today we sang Silent Night, that ancient song that commemorates the night when Jesus was born. Perhaps in your own family you sing songs like these, or perhaps you might sing others like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosted Snowman, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. What did the fox say? I mean, you know, 
That's all kind of songs that we can sing during Christmas. There's a, there's a particular song that has a little bit of history to it, true history, in regards to a time where there was no peace on, on earth. Some of you may know, may know this story. It's called the, the Christmas Truce of 1914. And this was the occasion. Pope Benedict XV, I think it was, um, World War I had just started. Okay, And primarily at this point, you had the, the Germans against the Brits. And, uh, and Pope Benedict, five months in, suggested that the, the warring nations pause so that the soldiers could observe Christmas. And the leaders of uh, all the nations involved said, I, we're not going to do that. This is, this is a war, this is combat. We're not going to take a pause. But the soldiers thought differently. And so Christmas, Christmas Day, 1914, at the crack of dawn, uh, a, a soldier reporting from the British, the British trenches, this is trench warfare at the time, um, says all of a sudden they heard, they heard a sound coming forth. And it, was, it sounded like this. Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. If I remember my German from school, I would sing more, but I don't remember it. But it was the words of Silent Night. And I said, I know this song. And the German army started, at least in this vicinity of where the war had, what was being fought, they, they broke out with it in song in English. Silent Night. Holy night. And so on both sides, you had the German rendition and the English rendition of Silent Night going on. And then there was a, a on, the, on the German side, all of a sudden they saw lights going up, waving back and forth. There were candles erected on the, the bayonets of the German soldiers. And then one German soldier in one part of the, the, the trench was so bold enough that he took off all of his war, war garb and he came out in no man's land. And no man's land was probably like a football field's length between the, the Germans and the Brits, and the unthinkable happened. Right in the midst of World War I, there was a pause. There was an unannounced ceasing of, of war, where soldiers along, I think it was like 21 miles of, of, of trench, of enemy against enemy, opposing force against opposing force, meant to, you know, they were there to kill each other to achieve peace, decided that for Christmas, they weren't, going to, they weren't going to do that. And so for one day, the Germans and the Brits met in no man's land. And they traded cigarettes and they traded beer. They said the French beer was absolutely nasty. Nasty. Sorry, Valerie. <laughs> and they played games of soccer. And, I mean, they, the opposing forces became friends that day. And it all started with this song, Silent Night. The evening came, the soldiers went back to their trenches because the officers said to do that, dog on officers. And uh, that next morning, at the crack of dawn, the war continued. I find that story amazing. It's actually true. You can go to the history, history.com um, and, and read live testimonies of soldiers that were there at various points along the, the I think it's 21 miles of the trenches between the Germans and the French. The Germans have one rendition of it. The British have another rendition of it. But it's, it's all the same of much of that happening during this time. And I'm amazed at that. Uh, and there's some irony in it, firstly, because here are men from several nations fighting for peace. And the way that they would achieve this peace is by killing each other. The second irony is the, the title of the war itself. You guys remember what World War I was called? The war to end all wars. That's, that's ironic, isn't it? Because I, it didn't. Our, our parents, our grandparents, some of your great-great-grandparents 
lived, fought through World War II, and there have been a whole host of smaller wars involving multiple nations ever since, to include our current day. In fact, if you would look this up in Wikipedia, there's at least 45 armed conflicts going on in the world somewhere, some of them being, that have been going on for uh, several years, decades of years. So when it comes to peace, I think this is fair to say. We've, we can say there's, there's been a lot done to get it. All of us have our own idea of how to achieve it, but it's been, it's been a hard prize to catch. Peace is elusive. And what's true for us, even today, was also true for Israel centuries ago. I mean, they wanted peace and they wanted it bad. They wanted, uh, they wanted it for their nation. They wanted God to give them leaders who promoted it and somehow achieved it. They wanted it for their cities. They wanted it for the neighborhoods that they lived in. They wanted it for their families and their relationships in their families. They wanted peace for themselves. And I would think, you know, in our day, I mean, don't we want peace? Don't we look out at the world around us and say, you know what, this world is jacked up. And I wish things were better, especially now with the racial tension going on that's been going on for definitely the last three months. And I mean, you can go back to probably two years to some stuff that's been going on that would lend to us that, you know, things aren't as good as we think they are. We're a world, we're a nation, we are a society, a culture that lacks peace. We've been looking at Advent through the words of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived uh, roughly 700 years before Jesus Christ, and God used him to speak truth to the northern tribes of Israel. And Really, what we can see is from the moment that God delivered Israel out of out of Egypt, his his goal was his mission was to make them his his people. He Israel was to were to be God's cherished people. And he offered them the opportunity for him to be their God. And as as we see it lived out, Israel had some good days, but mostly they had some bad days in all the ways that God gave them opportunities to serve him, to love him, to to be who he had called them to be, they failed. They, didn't, they simply didn't do those things that God would have them do such that they would gain his favor and, and, his, best, and his blessing. And so God sends Isaiah. He, sends, he sent several prophets, but we're talking about Isaiah here. God sends Isaiah to warn Israel and eventually tell them that, hey, if you don't want to receive my terms of blessing and favor, then I'm going to judge you and I'm going to judge you by sending. I'm going to raise up a nation and I'm going to use that nation to defeat you. They're going to come and take away everything that you think is yours and that you that you cherish. They're going to kill some of you. They're going to take your land and they're going to deport you. You're going to go into exile. And so when Isaiah is prophesying in in this book after his name, He's talking to a people in their darkest days. I mean, they're on decline. They, they have no hope. They have a nation, a wicked nation that's looming over them. And it looks like um, any peace or semblance of peace that they could ever hope for is out of the picture. Yet in the midst of Isaiah saying Israel judgment is coming, God gives a word of hope. And so what we've read, and we'll read it again in chapter two, right at the beginning of the book is a word of hope that though I'm going to judge you and judgment is going to hurt you, here's a word of hope 
that peace is eventually going to come. I'm not going to tell you when, but it is going to come. And that's what we read in verses 2 through 4. Let's read that again. Here's what Isaiah writes. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The central point of this passage is this phrase that Isaiah repeats a co- at least a couple times, the, the mountain of the house of the Lord. You know, in Israel, as, long as, as well as the pagan nations that surrounded them, the mountains were a special place. They would use high places. You know, we would call them hills, but oftentimes they were actual mountains and they would go to, to worship there. They would expect to meet God there. And of course, it had different flavors for the different nations. Sometimes they would set up rocks. They would set up pillars. They would have uh, altars and they would sacrifice on these. But they would do this on mountains, on high places, expecting to meet with God. And Israel was no different. Many of the significant events in Israel's history, in their religion, happened on mountains, happened on on high places. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus 3, when God uh, uh, exposes himself to Moses, Moses has the theophany, this appearance of God in a burning bush, that's on a mountain. It's on Mount Horeb. Um, later on in Exodus 19, God has, of course, already delivered Israel out of, out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai, the mountain, mountain Sinai. And I mean, it's, this is really a, a vivid picture. Uh, as you read Exodus 19, God comes down. He, he condescends from his eternal dwelling and he manifests himself in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke. Even uh, the scriptures say is you, you, they heard um, the sound of trumpets coming out of the mountain. I mean, it was a glorious thing. It probably scared him to death. That's why they told Moses, you go talk to God. We'll do whatever you say, he says. Just don't have him talk to us. Um, later on in Israel's history, Mount Zion becomes a, a, an important high place in, in their religion. Of course, Mount Zion um, is the city of David. It's another name for Jerusalem. Mount Zion is actually a, a small hill outside of Jerusalem, even till today. Mount Zion is the, the place where it's thought that the original temple, the, the temple that Solomon built, that, that David, his father, commissioned him to build, uh, was at Mount Zion, either there or Mount Moriah. And then when you cross, cross over into the New Testament, there's a lot of stuff that Jesus did that happened on mountains. In the New Testament, um, we, we see that Jesus preached one of his most famous sermons was on a mountain. Mount, uh, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. He was on a mountain. The Sermon on the Mountain is what it's called. Uh, in Luke 6, uh, Jesus, when he, when he wanted to get away from the, the, the hustle and, and bustle of life, when, when, the, when the disciples were pressing him too much, it, uh, Luke 6 says he went to a mountain to pray. And then last, last example I'll give you, uh, one of the most prolific events that happened in Jesus' life was when he was transfigured. And he was transfigured in front of James, Peter, and John on a mountain. Okay, And of course there he met Elijah um, and, and Moses. 
And so this phrase, the mountain of the house of the Lord, is where the people came to meet and to worship God. And this is an amazing picture. In fact, what Isaiah is displaying here is, is a picture of a world that doesn't exist shy of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God created the world and everything was very good. And the end of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, when God says he's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Isaiah is giving us a picture of, of what peace looks like, what perfect peace looks like. And so in verse 2, he says there's coming a day, and he uses these words, latter day. And the, the, the translation there really is in the end of days. In other words, when, when the Messiah, when, when the anointed one brings in the kingdom of God in its fullest, in the end of days, there's, there's going to be, there's gonna be a, a flow of nations to it, to a mountain. And so I think the picture that he's giving us is there's going to be this, this river of humanity flowing to a place where God is. We don't know what that place is, but wherever God is, there's going to be a flow of people, a river of humanity toward it. Isaiah is promising a worldwide miracle where all the nations will gladly hurry to worship God and learn his ways. And we should see this as a miracle that's already starting. Think about Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, all, all God-fearers and Jews from the known world gathered in Jerusalem, and God poured out his spirit. And in the midst of that, of course, those people spread to all the known world. And, of course, today we're meeting as a church. And so... Churches all over the world and Christian missions all over the world are charged with taking the message of the gospel and spreading it to all those um, that are willing to hear it. And so in verse two, what he's doing is he's uh, Isaiah is saying there's going to come a time when people are going to willingly flow to the mountain of the Lord. In verse three, he uses these words. He says, come, let us go to the mountain, repeating the same thing that he's said uh, said before. And what he's pointing out here is that is you know, we in our lives, we search for significance. We search for hope. We search for joy in all kinds of things. But what he's saying is true hope and joy and love and anything that could be good in your life is where God is. That's what he means by the come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He's, he's saying, if you want to know, if you want goodness in your life, go to where God is. And here's the message for us. Um, Joy and peace and loving anything that you think will complete you, it's in Jesus. And so where Jesus is is where you'll find those things. And here's the neat part about this. Also at Pentecost, what does God do? He gives us the spirit. He puts himself in us so that we don't have to look for some building or, or some, some special high place where we go to meet God. Because God is, he's, he's put himself in us. We are the temple. He's choosing to dwell in us, which is a pretty, pretty cool picture. So he's saying, not just, uh, secondly, he says, out of Zion. In other words, we all have our ideas of what right looks like. We all have our ideas of what true religion, true religion looks like. You worship this God. You worship that God. Some people don't worship any God at all. And he's saying there's going to come a time when everyone will worship one God. And this God will be represented by this phrase, out of Zion. 
It's going to come a time when all the nations will recognize there's one God. We're going to set aside anything that we uh, that we want to believe that's not what God professes. And we will allow God to show us what real light and life are. And when that day comes, he says he, the, the Messiah, is going to bring peace. And then lastly, he says in, in verse four, this is what peace looks like. First, he says he shall judge between the nations. And it sounds like he's going to he's going to be an arbiter that uh, you're wrong. You're right. You can do what you want and you're, I'm going to smite you. That's not really what he's saying. He says God is going to teach us all to, to submit to him. He's going to put something in us that would make us want to submit to him. But I think the most interesting part of verse four are these words that come at the end of it. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. It just makes me think. I mean, what he's talking about a future that exists where there'll be no more fighting, no more war, not not even quarreling. Can you imagine that? Those of you who have kids. My, two days ago, my kids were at it, and I found myself yelling at them because they were yelling at each other. He says, that's not, it's not going to exist. God's going to take it all away. This is the interesting, interesting part. He's saying that God's going to take uh, the, the tools of, of combat and turn them into tools of agriculture and industry. You see that? Uh, they're going to beat their swords in the plowshares. There's spears in the pruning hooks. And so what this looks like is a future where there's no need for soldiers, no need for sailors, no need for airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, none of that stuff. That means there's not going to be any training posts. There's not going to be any army barracks. There's not going to be, God forbid, West Point, Naval Academy, Air Force Academy. There's not going to be a Pentagon. Some of y'all should, I mean, y'all should be like getting out your resumes, dusting them off. Because, I mean, look, I'm looking at a congregation that's like at least 60 percent military. Y'all are out. Y'all going to be out of work. God's going to have no need for you. There's going to be nothing about which nations will want to fight against each other. Isaiah is saying that the one, this Messiah that's to come will bring this. It will be one complete, total, comprehensive peace. Now, let's put this in perspective. Isaiah is speaking to a group of people, a nation on the brink of being judged by God. God is saying, this is it. I've threatened you. I've warned you. I've sent people that like demonstrably show you what this is going to look like and you won't turn. And so judgment is coming. But then he pauses and he says, and oh, by the way, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to be nice to you and I'm going to give you peace as well. And so if you were, you know, a nation like Israel, knowing that you deserved everything God was going to give you, and then he gives you this, a good word, a little bit of hope, I mean, what would you feel? I mean, would you be skeptical? Would you say, oh, we can't trust this God because we don't even know if he's like going to smite us or let us go? Or would you be like ready to jump for joy that, that God has given you a little bit of hope, that he's promised deliverance and it's going to come? And I think, truthfully, they probably felt all of that. Fast forward. All right. Fast forward 700 years. The, the truth is the northern kingdom of Israel never came out of exile. They, they never, as a consolidated group, made it out of exile. The, uh, the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by somebody that I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. And eventually they were all conquered by the Romans, the Greeks. 
And uh, the, the, the Israelites that were caught up in that as exiles just dissipated into the, the different lands. Now, the southern kingdom actually, after seven years of exile under the Babylonians, were returned back to the nation. And so 700 years, we cross into the New Testament and Jesus is born and uh, a segment of Jews are no longer in exile. But Israel is still not an independent nation. They are under the thumbprint of the Romans. And the Romans are, are good for religious society because they take the Greek language and it, and, and they make roads and all that, uh, all that the, the Romans did for their society helped to help Christianity in its form to flourish. And it's under this this guise that we hear about the, the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2 that we read during our candlelighting ceremony. And this is what we get in Luke chapter 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, say this with me, uh, go to the last slide. Verse 14. Say it with me. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Interesting passage. Isaiah prophesied that there would be a Messiah, a chosen one who would come and bring peace. And Luke records the event where the angels appear out of nowhere and uh, firstly appear to shepherds, some of the, the, the lowest life in the, the ancient Near Eastern culture, and announce that a baby is going to be born. He's he's Christ. He's the Messiah. This baby is the one that's going to bring peace, glory to God in the highest. This is this passage is significant here in Luke because the angels are saying the time is finally right. All that Isaiah prophesied about 700 years ago is happening right here in your midst. And he says that to shepherds, lowly shepherds. The, the interesting thing in this is that Israel expected their Messiah, they didn't, they didn't expect their Messiah to come as a little baby. They thought that their Messiah was going to come as a king. And you know what kings do, right? Kings do kingly things. And so when Israel's thinking Messiah, anointed one, Christ, they're not thinking that a baby's going to show up and that the, and that the, the God is going to manifest himself and announce through angels that, hey, the Messiah's here. Here he is. You're going to have to go to a stable to see him. And so this, 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 this sight here, it's not what Israel expected. Uh, it, kings, this is what kings do. They, they arouse the people. They build an army. They, they come up with a, a, a plan. They strategize and they go to war. And hopefully they're successful. If they're successful, they, they, they create the boundaries for their nation. They might even extend their own boundary. And there you have a king. And so the, the, the Jewish, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they wanted, they wanted a king. Think William Wallace. You guys seen Braveheart, right? Okay. So, uh, William Wallace, 
historical figure. He was a simple landowner that turned. I mean, he, he had a, a general like figure about himself. He, I'm, obviously, you've seen Mel Gibson, the man's man play William Wallace in the picture Braveheart. And William Wallace does just that. He comes and he amasses an army and he leads Scotland in an attempt to gain independence for for Scotland. And so this is what the Jews wanted. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come and kick, uh, you know, open up a can of kick somebody's boo-boo, right? I had to make that pretty because I was thinking something different. And I couldn't I couldn't say what I was thinking in under 12 audience. Think about it. They wanted someone that was going to go through the streets of Jerusalem and slay all the bad people and um, and and make things right for the Jewish nation. And that did not happen. They wanted God to to come and bring peace for them. And they wanted that that peace to be achieved by God dominating all those who were against them, who were not for them. But of course, this is not what Isaiah was suggesting 700 years before. Isaiah wasn't suggesting that that peace was going to be achieved that way. And of course, you know the story. Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't present himself as a warrior, as a general. In fact, uh, Jesus doesn't come with a warrior like uh, persona at all. Scripture says that Jesus had nothing that was comely, uh, that was um significant about the way he looked. And his message was such that uh, Jesus came meek and humble. He came with words that told the the Israel people about the the Jews, about the kingdom of God. It was an upside down world. Israel wanted a conquering king and Jesus came meek and lowly. And this really is the, uh, the tragedy of the Christmas story is that Israel missed the day of their visitation. They missed the Messiah that they had waited 700 plus years for because they wanted to achieve peace in their own way. They had an idea of what the right, what right looked like. They had an idea of what peace in their world looked like. They had an idea of how God was going to do everything that he had prophesied and promised for them was going to look. And when it was right there staring in their face in the form of a baby born in the manger, they dismissed him. They dismissed it. The gospel writer Luke records in Luke 19 that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This is towards the end of his life. In fact, Luke 19 says that Jesus came in. He's riding on a donkey. Of course, it was prophesied that Jesus, that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. And of course, it's when Jesus comes in riding on a donkey with his disciples, there's, I mean, there's, there's hoopla. Uh, hooray, hooray, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But instead of highlighting that, what Luke does in Luke chapter 19 is he records these words from Jesus in verse 41 through 43. Show that for me, guys, on the slide. You're going to make me turn there. All right. Luke 19, verse 41 through 43. Jesus says this, and when they drew near... This is Luke writing. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies 
will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. That, um, Jesus was an emotional person. The, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus uh, uh, displayed uh, moanings and groans for the people that God had sent him to. But there's only two times in all of Scripture that there are actually words that say Jesus cried. One was when one of his best friends, Lazarus, died. And this is in Luke 19. This is the other place that Jesus is said to have wept. Okay, And, and this is important. For us, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Imagine coming into a city. I mean, your favorite city of all the cities around the world. You see a welcome sign. Welcome, you know, established whenever. And all that you wanted to all that all that that was good about that city. You see that it's 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 gone to the wayside and you just start to weep. And so Jesus is saying here, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Israel, you've missed the day of your visitation, if you only knew how to achieve real peace, if you only knew who I was and why God sent me, if you only knew that I am the peace that you seek. Jesus is basically saying the same thing that Isaiah said. I'm giving you peace, yet you don't recognize it. I'm offering you peace, yet you're rejecting it. You don't recognize the day of your visitation when it's upon you. The underlying message here in Luke 19 is Jesus is predicting that there's going to be another nation to come and, and decimate the, the Jewish people. In fact, the Romans come in 70 AD, destroy the temple, and the Jews once more are dispersed as a people. What this gets at, and I think this is very instructive for us, is Jesus is saying that because the Jews rejected the type of peace that God was bringing, he left them to their own strategy. And you know what? We do that a lot. We want life to go a certain way. And when it doesn't go that certain way, we get mad. We try to change it in our own strength. And when we can't change it, I mean, we just we still try to do things our own way. And it's, it's as if Jesus is t telling us, OK, today. So just like the Israelites today, I got some peace for you. And you got two choices. You can receive peace and live in peace my way or you can do it your own way, okay? And when, when we don't listen to Jesus, he, he lets us do our own thing. And, you, and if you haven't lived life long enough to know that when you do your own thing, you're going to mess it up at some point, wait a, couple, wait a couple days. It's going to happen. And I don't know how about, how about you, but typically when things are just out of line in my life and I'm trying to make it right, there's, there's three ways that I try to make things right in my life. And I'm calling this I, th three ways that I'm trying to achieve peace uh, in my own strength. The first way is we try to change people. Think about it. You, you got to talk. I mean, life is just going tough. The, is the, is the very first thought of yours, all right, so I got to change something in my own life? Absolutely not. All of us look to the people that are around us and say, you know what? If only, I mean, if only my wife would change, if only my kids would change, if only my husband would change, if only my boss would change, but whenever we get into this idea of, of trying to change other people, um, it, it tends to end in more chaos. And, and the, the peace that we want, the change that we want, usually doesn't happen. And so if we figure out that we can't change other people, typically we try to change our circumstance to bring peace. 
And, and when we change our circumstance, usually we're trying to get more money or we're trying to uh, create a better prognosis for our life or for our situation. We might take on fewer responsibilities. We might think that, you know what, maybe if I just move to a different location, I'll move from this state to that state. If I'm in D.C., OK, I'll, I'll move to a different area in D.C. Let me just move to a different zip code and maybe life will be different. Maybe I can achieve peace that way. But I don't know if you, I mean, for those of you that, I mean, y'all, a lot of y'all are military, so you know that even when you move sometimes, just the chaos just follows you. I mean, it's just like, it just, it just goes to the zip code that you're at. And so if you can't change people to bring peace, if you can't change your circumstance to bring peace, perhaps if I just change myself. All right, so uncle, I will try to change myself. I, 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 I admit, I'm my own worst problem. Sometimes we have to resort to that. And then we'll, we'll do other things. We'll, we'll try harder. We'll try to, we'll, we'll, we'll give ourselves self-talk and say, come on, you can do this. You can actually do this better. You can be better. And the truth is, it, it gets better for a little bit. But then life just turns to normal. What we should learn from our text today through both Isaiah's writings and the, the, the short verses that we read in, in Luke's narrative is that God prescribes a way of peace. And if we choose to go our own way, we get what our own way produces. Not peace, but chaos. And that's why Advent is so important. Advent reminds us that the way God comes to establish peace is not by destroying his enemies, but by taking their place. Did you hear that? God doesn't come to destroy enemies. He's not coming as a warrior. He's not even going to send us a warring general as a Messiah. He comes to take our place. God doesn't come to say, I've come to wipe out all the bad people and I'll leave the innocent people alone. Because when God comes, he doesn't find any innocent people. They don't exist. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21 a couple weeks ago, and I think it's appropriate to look at it again as we think about this idea of peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying here is that the Bible tells us our problem with God, really our, our problem, our lack of peace, is, is, is a problem with us. It's the problem of sin in all of us. God's holy, we're sinners, and this doesn't put us on the good side of war. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're enemies of God. We're rebels. We're the big bad enemy. And God's justice demands that he goes to war with everybody that's not on his side. And yet he makes a way for peace. And so what Paul does is tells us this is how God achieves peace. God is going to achieve the peace for you. He doesn't take away the justice. He attacks the enemy. Every way that we war against God, every way we sin, he puts his wrath on his son and gives us his favor. He allows his son to undergo the brutal execution of a cross that we typically talk about at Easter to allow you and me to experience his goodness and his favor. This is how Paul articulates that in Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been reconciled. And so Paul is saying the way that God achieves peace is by taking our place. And what he does is by the blood of Jesus on the cross, God reconciles us to himself. You know, we don't, we don't use that word reconcile in our normal English language very often. It's a legal word. It's, it's a Christian word, really, that we, you know, we find in the Bible, and we, we read it because it's in the Bible. But what it means is, is God, he takes two factions that are at war with each other, and he makes peace between them. He does something to satisfy the, the, the angst that's between them, and he makes peace. And he does that through his son. He does that by sending us Jesus. Jesus takes the penalty of God's wrath for us that God might extend to his real enemies, you and I, the peace that we don't deserve. And we often miss this at Christmas. We focus on the baby in the manger, but we forget that that baby grows up to be a man. And by God's plan, he goes to the cross. So you've got your nativity scene, and it's got you know, some animals. It's got Mary and Joseph. It's got, uh, it, it may have three wise men. Honestly, if you read the Christmas scripture correctly, take those wise men, pull them about 12 inches away, because they don't come for two years later. They come when Jesus is about two years old. Sorry. Seriously, do it when you get home. Pull them wise men away. They aren't in the picture. And then we see baby Jesus. And, and we, we're thrilled for baby Jesus. But baby Jesus grows up and he dies in our place for our sin, that we might gain God's blessing and that he might gain God's curse. And that peace that Jesus gives us is supposed to permeate everything in our life. You know, I haven't said a whole bunch about um, the, the racial tension in our country now, um, I have really haven't, haven't had need to, but here's, here's my two-second perspective on the, the racial, intention, uh, uh, racial tension in our, in our country. You know, we're, we're a country that, that's devoid of peace. There is, there's, no, there's not true peace here, but there never will be. You know why? Because to get peace out here, you have to have peace in here. Peace in your heart comes when you have peace with God. That's what Paul says in Romans 9, that God has taken you who are an enemy, who he's not at peace with, and by, the, by you receiving Jesus as your peace, God um, himself declares an end to the war between you and him, and you become at peace with God. And when you're at peace with God, he gives you peace in your heart. And when you have peace in here, then I can go to my neighbor who I don't like. I can go to my neighbor who, who, who lives different than me, who looks different than me, and I can extend peace to my neighbor even when they're unlike me. And so we won't have peace in our nation, folks, until we have peace with God. How do we get peace in our country? It's you and I. God put us in the world as salt and light. You take Christians out of the world, then the world is, I don't know, it's dark and it's rotten. Dark and rotten. God uses you to be the peace that the world needs. And you're supposed to spread that peace. And so Jesus comes and he offers us peace. 
And that's the peace of Advent. Really, it's, it's the gospel. He offers you a peace, and the peace is himself. And so give yourself a gift this Christmas. Receive Jesus. He is your peace. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word. I pray that it would fall on our ears, that it would penetrate the thickness of our skin, that it would seep into our hearts, and that it would change us. Lord, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. This is a glorious time. It is a fun time, especially if you're a kid. I pray that for all those who are in this room and those under the sound of uh, the, the hearing of my words, that you would grant us a, a Christmas season that's filled with joy and hope and love, that we would be surrounded by friends and family, and that, Lord, we would both gain happiness just because it's Christmas, but also that because we are Christians, that we would revel in the reason for the season, that Jesus has come, Jesus is born, predicted so many years ago, fulfilled 2,000 years. He came as a baby and he died in our place for our sin. Lord, today you give us an invitation to look beyond this season and to see Jesus for who he is. He is the hope of our world. Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. Jesus isn't just a gift. He's a byproduct of enjoying the greatest gift, the gift of joy. And today we learn that Jesus is our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Would you allow all of us to make room for him in our hearts this Christmas season? We pray that in Jesus' great name. And I pray, amen and amen.